Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you want to get a question to me, don't leave it in the comments. Don't text it to me. Don't send it to me on Twitter. Uh, ask me by sending it to me at that email address, and I'll get it into my queue, and I will try to get to it as quickly as I can. Some questions take more precedence than others depending on how much research I have to do or whether I even know the answer to the question. All right. Now, I wanted to put a quick plug in for my Patreon account. I did this a couple weeks ago, and I got some great response from some of you, and that is awesome. I want to keep that going, and I really do need your help. I want to make that clear. Uh, this is not, you know, this is not kind of a little, you know, a way it sure would be nice. It's like I, I really could use the assistance here. This is a, um, this show, this channel, the work that I do getting through this university program it's all funded by you guys. <laughs> you know, this is my job. And so I would like a raise. <laughs> and I hope that the content I'm putting out is worthy of that and that more of you will jump on board and join me on Patreon or, of course, assist as some of you do so well uh, through PayPal or uh, other means. So anyway, just wanted to put that plug out uh, there for you guys and also remind you about Critical Merchandise uh, my little merchandise site, which is also linked below where you can get things uh, that help support the channel and give you the opportunity to actually help promote my channel, which I've never really asked for a whole lot of help from. But if you guys want to help with that, that's one way of doing it. And also, of course, you get some, you know, pretty cool clothes or hats or bags or whatever you want to put those, uh, that, you know, that merch on. All right, so those are my plugs for that. Let's go ahead and uh, remind you about the podcast this week, uh, posted yesterday. It's another in the chapter of ongoing series that Cyprian Ivanov and I are discussing and breaking down Scientology's organizational madness, and there hasn't been any big uh, paradigm shift or reformation that's occurred within the Church of Scientology over the last, you know, eight, nine years and they're still up to the usual crazy shenanigans that they've always been up to. And so um, anyway, so you might find that podcast and that series of podcasts I did with Cyprian to be pretty interesting in breaking down just how, you know, we, we talk about how crazy it is to work for Scientology. But in this series, I really get to let my hair down and give you guys the full blast of, of just how nuts it was. So I hope you guys will check those podcasts out. All right, now let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Kevin Zay, I was wondering if you could touch on the continued COVID denial and anti-vaccine sentiment that continues to plague us. Locally, it has increased in intensity as school starts and county health departments issue mask mandates for school districts in their coverage area. There have been anti-mask protests at school board meetings and people have been getting threats via voicemail and social media. In fact, at two school board meetings, the people in favor of masks actually had to be escorted through the audience by sheriff's deputies or local police officers for their safety. It's getting out of hand. I know you have said that it's easy to fall for misinformation and you don't have to literally be stupid to do so, but at this point, I've lost any semblance of empathy or sympathy that I may have had for these people. I just don't get it. What is it that makes people distrust medical professionals and vaccines only to blindly jump on board with unproven treatments such as the wrong form of ivermectin or even chlorine dioxide for COVID peddled by people with no credentials? Hey, Kevin, thank you very much for this question. And I understand that this is a point of deep concern for many of us, including me. And if you guys have followed me on Twitter, you have seen my emotions go up and down and my um, patience level go up and down in regards to this particular problem and the seeming embrace of pseudoscience that we see happening across the United States. Now, of course, I say that as though this is some new phenomenon, and it is not. We have been plagued by snake oil salesmen for as long as people have been around just about, and certainly since the salesman identity has sort of infected the American personality or ego, you could say, uh, with books like Dale Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which really did change the entire sort of flavor of American society in many ways. 
the roots of this go back very, very far. Um, now, as far as commenting on this from a psychological perspective, which I'd like to do first, I, you know, we all know about, or I've spoken at length um, through lots and lots of videos about logical fallacies and cognitive biases and the reasons why we don't think so good. And there are many, many reasons, though. It's a laundry list of things that we can do that, are, that send our thinking astray and send us off in crazy directions. And this is a this is a level that you can look at and and see that people are engaged in very fallacious thinking, very error filled thinking. They cite sources that they shouldn't. They rely on authorities who are not really authorities when it comes to understanding viruses or uh, vaccines or medicine at all. Yet we also find general practitioners or uh, those two doctors out in California who were uh, on a tear last year about how these vaccines are just not good for you and you shouldn't be taking them and they're all unproven and everything is a big hoax. And, um, and so even having a couple letters after your name is no certainty that you're going to be somebody who really understands the problem you're talking about or is giving out, you know, even halfway decent advice. So, you know, what are we to do? Well, there's, there's, there's two things here, and I'm going to comment more about the problem than I am the solution because I, I really don't have a, an, an airtight, nice, wrapped up in a bow solution to this. You know, I don't know that anybody does yet, which is why this persists. What we're seeing is an exaggeration or a, a hyperbolic sort of demonstration of, of, of fallacious thinking. And for me, from my point of view and from the study that I've done and the research that I've done over the years on why people think poorly, uh, a lot of it seems to come down to our biases and the, and the, and the, the slant with which we view the world. And I have to be clear here that every single person has a slant, has a bias, has a framing for the world that is not necessarily objective reality. It, you see things because of your education, your language, your location, uh, geographically, your family, the connections you have. Uh, all of these things contribute to your worldview, every single person anywhere in the world. Uh, if you're brought up in China, you're going to come up with a point of view of the world and a view of socio-economic uh, responsibilities, cultural responsibilities, familial responsibilities, familial duties, familial ideas are going to be very, very different from if you grow up in the United States or if you grow up in Brazil or if you grow up in Alaska. You know, I mean, you get my point. Everybody's got a little bit of a different spin or take on reality. And when crises happen, like is happening with COVID or emergencies, especially long-term emergencies, then you're going to see more and more, quote-unquote, insane behavior out of people because they are being stretched too thin and their anxieties are being exploded both inside and outside of themselves. And, um, and this is not even something necessarily new with COVID, if you hearken back to 9-11, for example, you're going to remember most of us who were around when that happened, and certainly a great number of people who are anti-vax or are having these problems with the, with the COVID and the medications were around when 9-11 happened, um, then you'll remember that there was a very distinct change in the entire culture of the United States and our attitude about the world around us and ourselves following that. And then you have any other series of events that have happened that have influenced and driven us further and further apart, more and more divided, more and more feeling like we're at each other's throats, that we can't seem to agree on even the most basic principles that we used to not, you know, that we used to almost take for granted. You know, if you had a medical problem, you went and saw a doctor. Now it's which doctor and why and which brand of doctor. And we've got all of this wrapped up in some kind of ideological package that we all seem to be carrying around with us where I'm a fill in the blank and that defines everything about you. 
And we've sort of fallen into this sort of rank and file. I'm with the Reds, you're with the Blues, and we can't associate. Or you're, you want to kill me, or you want my death, or you want to take away my freedoms, or you want to hurt me, or you just want everything for you and nothing for me. You know, we, we, every accusation you can imagine has flown back and forth. And this has created a cultural situation in the United States of a kind of war footing. And if you watched my podcast yesterday uh, with Cyprian, then you know what I'm talking about in terms of the stress level that comes with being in a crisis slash war footing situation. Your, you know, your uh, certain chemicals get riled up. Your brain is on overdrive. It's 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 exhausting itself because of you know that tired feeling you have, that exhausted feeling you have, that ugh, I just can't deal with this anymore feeling. That's that's where some of this comes from, and this is very powerful stuff for us, especially when it goes on for too long. Anybody can deal with an immediate crisis situation. We're kind of built for that, but we're not built for crises to last forever. And since uh, I've just mentioned a few things that have happened in the last, you know, 20 years, we can take it back further, but I think you get my point. There are external activities, external events that happen that have affected all of us in very significant ways. So that's sort of looking at it maybe a little more at the social level, but we have to keep in mind that we basically are social creatures. We, none of us are capable, really, of living alone. You, you can't be born and, and start surviving alone. So from the very beginning of our time in this world, we are dependent on other people for our survival. And that pretty much carries forward for the rest of our lives. No man is an island. No woman is an island. Nobody lives alone. When you find out, you know, if you put somebody into solitary confinement, you start driving them crazy. And if, if they're not already crazy, but, you know, like in terms of um, prisons and stuff, but this is where we see it. You, you know, you, you, you take somebody and you isolate them and you make them completely uh, shut off from everybody else and they start going nuts. Um, give it time. It'll happen to just about anybody. So that's, I'm just counter, I'm just putting that out there as the sort of the obvious proof why we are we need other people. We need to connect and, and uh, get along with and, and have a group, have a tribe. We have to have a family. We have to have that. And even if it's a, you know, a substitute family or a proxy family, we still have to have something. And, and, we, and all of us you know, yearn for and look for those kind of connections. We have to have those kind of connections in the same way we have to eat and we have to sleep. It's that basic to us. So where I'm going with this is that we are going to form up into these little social circles or these social tribes um, just, just because we're going to do that. And when we do that, we agree to certain principles, morals, ethics, the, the, the rules, the guidelines of the, of the group we're part of, even if it's just our family, you know, you grow up with rules, you know what I'm talking about, um, manners, etiquette, all that kind of stuff. That's part of this. Um, you know, membership rules, your identity is defined by the groups you're part of, starting with your family, then your schooling, then your job, then the clubs you're part of, the hobbies or activities you take, you, you, you do. All of this defines who we think we are. And those forces, where I'm, where I'm trying to take this is that all of that stuff I'm talking about is more fundamental to our existence, is more basic to our needs than facts are. And I don't mean that we don't need facts. I mean, we do, but I'm talking about levels of necessity, sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you might say. We have emotional needs that have to be met, period. And if those emotional needs are not being met, then we are going to find some way or we're going to desperately search until we can find something that will fulfill those needs. And emotional needs are not fact-based things. Emotions are, I, this is, I'm sort of positing this. I'm sort of throwing this out to see what you guys think about this. But I, you know, I look at emotion or emotions as thoughts, they're things that happen in your brain, just like any other thoughts or ideas you have, except 
Emotions actually are experienced by your entire body. When you have an emotion, it's not just happening up here. It's happening in your stomach. It's happening in your muscles. It's happening in your toes. Your whole body feels it when you're angry, when you're enraged, when you're grief-stricken, when you're sad, when you are apathetic, when you are happy. Your whole body is involved. And, and, and that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it. And again, these are very, very basic to us. Uh, more basic than even language and um, and society and civilization, right? I mean, these kind of needs. So we're going to have to fill those. And 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 I wanted to kind of emphasize the strength of these drives, the the importance of them to us. Um, they're more important than facts. You know, I you'll find people who will get involved in groups and will say, well, I'd rather be wrong with X than right with, with Y. You've seen that. You've heard that, right? People who I'd rather, you know, uh, Trump is our guy. You know, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch, right? And, you know, you, L. Ron Hubbard is a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. I mean, you get that from independent Scientologists, you know, you, you get this sort of even acknowledgement of the fact that this person or this group or this identity or, or whatever is maybe something wrong with it. Maybe something's not right, but it fulfills emotional needs. And fulfilling emotional needs is the first thing that has to be checked off in our needs, in our necessities. Then we'll get around to the facts, you see, because I, I happen to follow the theory that the frontal lobes and, the, and our whole invention of, of language and logic and reason and this whole concept that we have of a rational mind is, is really a reflection of a part of our brain that evolved in order to justify or rationalize our behavior to other people in our social circles and allow us to connect more easily with people that we can have common cause with so that we can establish social circles in the first place. I think that's why I personally believe that's one of the primary functions of the frontal lobes. Not, notice, not fact-finding. Not determining objective reality, but determining the reality that is necessary for me to connect with you and you to connect with me. We don't have to bond on the truth, but we can still bond. We can bond over complete lies. Look at the neo-Nazis. Bunch of crazy people, you know, bonding very, very strongly over ideas that are absolutely nuts. But they bond very strongly because the emotional needs are being fulfilled. They're being met, right? Same tribe, same, yes, you verify and validate my reality and I verify and validate yours. And that's how we have a group and that's how we get along and I'm happy now and you're happy now and what else do we have? What else do we need, right? So I think that's... Uh, you know, these are the things that underlie thinking and underlie logic. And so if, you know, it, it, logic alone doesn't satisfy, you know, facts, objective reality alone doesn't provide a whole lot of emotional comfort for people. This is why religion exists. This is why fantasies, why pseudoscience gets a pass, you know, is because of these emotional needs. They are powerful. They are strong. And they're very basic to us, you know. So, you know, this is why an intervention, for example, is an effort to try to sit a person down and calmly and rationally without a bunch of emotion on the table, deal with the problem of their cult experience or their cult involvement, right? And why it's a long process. It's not something you get done in a day unless you're, you know, some amazing, you know, genius person. Generally speaking, interventions are not one-shot wonders. It, it takes a long period of time to change somebody's heart and mind when they are deeply committed to something. And this is what we kind of see with the vaccine problem is we have ideology getting in the way of, um, you know, just objective reality and science. And ideology is a hell of a drug, man. And, 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 and the reason why I kind of went into the history lesson there is because this has been a long-term problem. This has been brewing for a very long time. You know, there's a difference between taking a side or having a label and then going all in on that label or all in on that identity. So it literally defines who you are as a person, as an entity. 
according to you, your own self-definition of who you are, when that, you know, when those labels become that personal and that basic to you, then they are what is defining what's true and false for you. Objective reality almost ceases to be a factor anymore in what you're going to accept as true or false, because the identity is what determines what's true and false. And that's a, that's, that's, kind of wild. It's kind of weird. It's a weird way of looking at things, I think, for some people. But as far as I can determine, that's that's about as uh, close to an objective reality statement as I can make. And um, and these identities, this, you know, this this way our psychology works, where it wraps itself around these principles and ideas and rules and morals and ethics and all that, that we call an identity or a personality you know, this is who we are. This is how we see ourselves. So when you are arguing with somebody who is anti-mask or anti-vaccine, and I'm talking here specifically about the 14% of Americans who apparently are immovable on this topic, according to uh, 538, which is, a, I, I believe, a reputable statistical source for, for information, uh, 14% of Americans for months now have been completely immovable on whether they're ever going to put on a mask or ever take a vaccine. They are just not going to do it. And this is, the, this is the people I'm talking about when I say they've wrapped their identity around it. It's an unreasonable thing, but there it is. It's right in our faces. And, and that 14% doesn't really move. There's a higher, there's another level above that uh, that does vary, that does move. The fence sitters, the people who want to wait and see, the I'm open to it, but I'm concerned, I'm worried, I'm upset. I, I have valid reasons to be concerned. And they're not quite as ideological about the whole thing as that 14%. When you're dealing at that level, you're talking to people that you can kind of more have a more rational discussion with so long as you're not insulting them or, you know, making them feel defensive about their situation. And, of course, those of us who have been taking vaccines and, and complying with the lockdowns and doing all the things that we've been told to do because they're for public safety and, and health, we have some degree of resentment towards those people who absolutely refuse. Uh, this resentment is not unjustified. <laughs> you know, we're being put out. And we're going along with it. How come they can't, right? And this now hits on the um, rights button, okay? And the rights, the, the, the civil rights button here is a powerful one. Uh, and the arguments exist on both sides of this. And my take on that is that um, I, I believe that if you're going to insist on your rights, that you have civil rights and human rights, and I believe people do, they must also at the same time acknowledge where those rights come from, and it's not God. God didn't come down and write the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, and God doesn't enforce it when somebody violates your rights. People do. Our government does. And if you don't recognize that your rights come from a set of agreements that all of us have and keep as a society, and that's what makes America what it is, if you think it's all take and no give— then, you're, then your equations are out of whack. You don't understand what rights are and where they come from and why you even have them in the first place. And, um, and the argument that they come from God is specious and ridiculous. It's, it, it just doesn't hold any water because God himself is not something you can point to and go, well, here's how it happened and here's why we have these rights. Bullshit. That's not how that works at all. The only reason we have the rights that we have is because they were enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Um, and that's, that's the, the plain truth of it. And then the courts and the system keep those rights intact and the police and the justice system keep those rights intact to one degree or another. And that's why we have them. And because we all agree we have them, that's what makes it real. And yet we can argue and debate over the nature of those rights, how those rights are exhibited, how those rights are, are executed. But I just want, I like to point out in this argument that there are also responsibilities that come with those rights. That's the price tag for having those rights is you have to conform when it comes to what the group is doing. Uh, otherwise, you're not really part of the group. You know, it's not all take and you don't have to give anything. Uh, but this seems to be a misunderstood uh, principle, at least as far as I can tell, amongst some of these people who are 
sort of in that waffly zone, as well as those people who are in the 14%. So this uh, is also another layer of contention on this whole thing I thought I'd comment on. But again, huh, uh, I don't have tidy solutions to this. And it's difficult for me to comment on things without offering some kind of like, well, here's maybe something we can do about it. But honestly, at this point, I really don't know. I think that we are torn, uh, being torn apart. I think our media is not assisting in this uh, with their sort of divisive rhetoric and and the whole, you know, there's red media and blue media now and and all of that. That 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 has not helped the situation in any way. But of course, it's understandable because reporters and journalists are people too, and they get just as frustrated as anybody else. So it's you know it's a difficult thing. Um, I wish it were simpler. I wish there were easy solutions to this, but it's really the way I see it, we would need a multi-vectored approach to dealing with this. In other words, there'd be a lot of things we got to do to deal with this at the media level, at the government level, at the education level. And we don't have a lot of time. And all of this has been crunched down into a lot, you know, a lot's happened in a very short period of time, a lot's happening. And stress levels are just going up and up and up and up and up. And we've got to somehow, I believe, through all of these efforts, we've got to bring the level down. We're at 11 and we got to come down. We got to bring it down. We are too much at each other's throats. We are too passionate. We are too riled up. And, um, and generally speaking, from a historical perspective, good things don't happen when that's going on. So I think that we're in a better position now than we've ever been before to disseminate information, to propagate, to get information around because we have the internet. Again, double-edged sword because all the bad shut, all the bad stuff gets out very, very easily. But you know, the good stuff can too, and um, and we need to really, you know, I don't know, we gotta we gotta bring the level down somehow, um, and from there we can then perhaps you know, change hearts and minds or address the concerns or find out what all the concerns are. You know, I haven't really gotten here into the specific things they say, because in many ways, when you're dealing with that 14%, it's whack-a-mole. Because the logic that's used, the reasons that are given for why they have to go take ivermectin or why they have to go take the chlorine dioxide or why they will never have a vaccine passport or why, 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 all those reasons are fairly specious reasons. They're stupid. They're, they're not the real reasons. The real reasons have to do with those emotional needs and that ideology and the identity that's wrapped up in the ideology. That's, that's more fundamental to what's really going on there. And that's why it feels like you're playing whack-a-mole when you're trying to handle, you know, with logic and reason and facts their concerns or their upsets or their 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 protests about it is it's you handle one thing and then something else and then you handle that and then something else comes up it's like you know constantly moving the the goalposts well that's because of those emotional needs and uh and what they what they really seem to be thinking when they're when you're having this conversation about whether it's flat earth or covid or masks or whatever is you're trying to destroy me. That's, that's what's kind of going on in their head is you're trying to do away with me. You're trying to kill me. You're trying to take away my rights. You're trying to, just, you know, to uncreate me uh, with your reasons and your logic and your nonsense, right? Because you're the enemy and I'm the good guy. So you're the bad guy. And so I can't listen to anything you have to say. You know, and when you have that kind of attitude and that kind of thing as a barrier between you, it doesn't work so well. You know, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't go so well. It's not so smooth. And that's kind of where we're at. So anyway, long diatribe here. I hope that some of this information was at least informative um, and, you know, useful in some fashion in trying to shine a little bit more light on what's going on. That's what you asked about. And that's what I hope I answered. And, um... There you go. Steve Wood. I understand the sea organization lives in a bubble, but Scientology public do not. So my question is, how do you feel the public Scientologists gauge their success in saving the planet? Do they think they are winning? Surely at some point they realize they might be fighting a losing battle. Hey, Steve, thanks for this question. Um, actually, Scientology public do live in a bubble. 
And let me help define that bubble a little bit to answer your question, because the truth is that most Scientology public are able to sort of not think too much about that particular problem. Saving the world is something that's on the radar of the staff and the Sea Org, not the Scientology public. That's, you know, rah-rah, that's events, that's things they go to and they see Scientology progressing in the world and they see that they are told that there's more and more acceptance of Scientology and it's, and it's taking over more and more and it's in this prison system and it's in this drug rehab program and it's in this school and look at all this amazing stuff we're doing and look at how clean our, our orgs are and how COVID respondent we are and how responsible we are. Well, public go to these events and they go through the rah-rah and they stand and they applaud. But all that means for them in the, in the main is, okay, we're winning, we're, we're continuing, we're inching forward. Good job, David Miscavige. Good job, Scientology. Take more of my money because I need to get up the bridge. And, and it's that last bit that is the thing that really drives most Scientology public is a selfish desire to move up the bridge and get the hell out of here. You know, get cause over life, not have the dips and drabbles and nonsense of life get in their way and be at cause. That's what they're paying for. They're not really paying to save the world. They're paying to save themselves. And whatever... Donations are given to the IAS for the fourth dynamic crusades and fourth dynamic projects and all of that. That serves the Scientologist as much as they think it serves the world because those donations to the IAS are in themselves a point of status in the world of Scientology. You get special titles by donating more money to the IAS or to the other projects that the science that Scientology puts out because it's not just the IAS there's also the books into the libraries and things like that and of course many Scientologists do want to help and do want to contribute to the motion of, of expanding Scientology it's not pure selfishness but what I'm trying to make the point of is that it's probably about 80% selfishness <laughs> okay you can push those those buttons and and get that that, that push to get money or get time or get effort put in to help the local org, get the files in order, that kind of thing. Sure, you know, there's a few Scientologists, and trust me, it is a few Scientologists, not all of them by any stretch, who will come in and volunteer time and will help out their local orgs, will do their part, so to speak. But the vast majority of public Scientologists don't care they don't really care about the state of their local org. They don't really care about the state of Scientology so long as they are moving up the bridge and they are getting their goods and they are happy with the services. That's what they care about. So um, in terms of, you know, is, is Scientology saving the world? Well, obviously, we all know that it's not. And the public Scientologists are fed the information they're given at the events and by the staff and at the, all the briefings they go to. And they believe it. They, they don't have any reason not to. And they don't go home and fact check it and look in and see if David Miscavige was telling them the truth. By the time they're doing that, they're already on their way out. Uh, but in, you know, in good standing, Scientologists would never even dream of fact checking David Miscavige. You know, why would they? They don't have to. He's, you know, he's the leader of Scientology. He tells the truth. You know, he knows what he's doing. Look at, look at what he's doing. Look at the ideal orgs. Look at all this expansion. Look at all this great stuff that's happening. And that's about as much thought as they put into it. They don't really don't have to go any deeper than that. So they don't. There you go. BB, I got the impression that you're not a fan of Ben Shapiro and was wondering how you feel about the so-called, quote-unquote, intellectual dark web in general. Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson, Barry Weiss maybe Joe Rogan, etc. I feel like even though I don't agree with a lot of their views, they do engage in critical thinking and an interest in serious discussion and open debate. Ben Shapiro, for example, obviously makes his living by criticizing liberals and is basically reactionary slash reactive, but I do think he's highly intelligent and analyzes different sides of arguments. Do you feel like a lot of these YouTube slash conservative or libertarian-leaning populist intellectuals, quote-unquote, as it were, 
are really engaging in critical thinking, or do you think they are misguided somehow? All right. Well, here's a fun idea for you to start answering this question. Um, I believe that somebody who is engaged in pure, objective, critical thinking wouldn't be libertarian, wouldn't be conservative, and wouldn't be liberal. They wouldn't be taking sides in the first place. So automatically, by the fact that people are taking sides, I think that there is bias. And bias is going to curve an ability to do objective, critical thinking 100% of the time. So do I believe that they are uh, engaging in critical thinking? Yes, but not pure. <laughs> okay. Uh, just kind of throwing that idea out there. You guys tell me what you think about that. But as far as my personal take on these guys, I don't, my problem with Ben Shapiro is not his intellect or even his politics. I get where he's coming from and I disagree with almost everything he has to say, but not everything. And um, same with Barry Weiss. Dave Rubin, I do not have good words about. And Jordan Peterson is a complicated character. Um, I believe that Jordan Peterson knows what he's talking about when he starts discussing clinical psychology. And I believe he goes completely and entirely off the reservation when he goes off into almost any other subject. <laughs> so uh, so I, I have uh, learned from him in terms of his psychological information. The rest of it, has been thought-provoking, and I have done very deep dives on Jordan Peterson. Um, but so, like I said, it's very thought-provoking, but he makes himself incredibly difficult to understand, and the, some of the concepts that he dabbles in are a little silly. So, um, but he takes himself very seriously, and good for him. You know, he can, he can have that road, and that's what he's doing. As far as the, um, I did want to comment also on this intellectual dark web, because when you talk about intellectuals, I don't see these people as intellectuals um, as a term. You know, intellectual to me means genius, means a real smart person, right? Somebody who's really applying themselves. And I see these guys applying themselves to varying, with varying degrees of effort, uh, depending on the topic they're talking about. And, um, you know, and fair enough, everybody's got all their own interests and everything, but I don't particularly find these guys very highbrow. I find them using highbrow words, but that doesn't mean that the thoughts and concepts that they're thinking with or that they're, you know, debating on or talking about are particularly deep. You know, they don't really go very deep. They don't go to basic causes. They don't look to history for answers or solutions very often. They um, tend to, like almost all ideologues on the web these days, they're more interested in creating the conflict than they are in resolving it. And um, that's a problem. You know, that's part of the problem in, in the last answer I gave as to, you know, why this divisiveness continues. Well, part of the reason is because we've made a practice in our media of divisive behavior, you know, divisive rhetoric. And, uh, you know, you're wrong, I'm right, and therefore you're evil and must be destroyed. I mean, they, you know, one does not necessarily follow the other. Just because you're wrong doesn't mean you need to be destroyed because you're evil. But that's the that's you know that's kind of where we're going, and some of these guys are some of the flag bearers for that, for that way of thinking. These are not people who are preaching tolerance and compassion. These are people who are riling up their fan base uh, for their for their ideology and for their popularity, and that's not necessarily an evil act. You know, it's it's along the same lines as the living that I'm making, except that I'm preaching kind of tolerance and compassion. And they're not, and at least not that I see. I haven't seen that. I've seen ridicule. I've seen condescension. I've seen arrogance even out of every single one of those people, especially Dave Rubin. He's one of the worst. And Rogan is a faux intellectual. He plays at it, uh, but he's really not. And he's a, he's a good interviewer because he's been doing it for years and pays attention to the process, but he's not particularly a smart person. And he is, there are so many things that people have gone onto his show and talked about and, and expressed to him that had he taken that on, he would actually be demonstrating a higher level of intelligence than he does. But he's incredibly biased because of his politics. And, you know, that's my take on him. And I've watched hours and hours and hours and hours of Joe Rogan. I know I've been uh, a Joe Rogan fan and I've been a, 
a non-Joe Rogan fan, and now I really don't have, uh, you know, a, a fan thing about him one way or the other. Um, I just, you know, I just look at him as somebody who pushes some fairly silly ideas, and I wish more of his listeners would listen to him when he says, I'm an idiot, you shouldn't listen to me, <laughs> because he's right. That's the one thing that Joe Rogan has said that I absolutely agree with. Uh, but so some of his guests I've agreed with and some of his guests I haven't, and what else is new, right? Um, so anyway, in terms of whether these guys are engaging in critical thinking or whether they're misguided somehow, I think it's both. You know, uh, I think that's the only real honest, level-headed answer that could be given to, to a question like that is, yes, they do engage in critical thinking and they are called intellectuals because they engage in using critical thinking more than your average media pundit. No question about that. But there are other people who do it significantly better than they do who are not part of this quote-unquote intellectual dark web, which really is just a PR term. It doesn't really mean anything. Uh, so that's kind of my, my take on those guys. I've got, you know, I'm f as full of opinions and bias as anybody else and I own it and I know it. Okay. So, um, I'm not looking for broad agreement on my opinions about these individuals or my take on this. You, you asked, so I'm answering. So there you go. Alex C. If LRH actually returned and it were proven scientifically, what impact would that have on organized religion and society at large? How quickly would David Miscavige find himself in the RPF? I realize this is very, very unlikely, but figured it's an interesting hypothetical. Thanks and good job keeping sensibility working. Thank you, Alex. This is a great question. First off, David Miscavige would be on the RPF in about 0.3 seconds. L. Ron Hubbard would be absolutely furious at the state of Scientology right now. And David Miscavige would absolutely be scapegoated for that because he is the guy responsible for it. I mean, Scientology's in the tank. It's the most toxic religion uh, in the United States right now. I mean, uh, probably if I have my numbers right, uh, one in three Americans probably is well aware of how toxic Scientology is and considers it toxic. And that's pretty bad. You know, I would like to get it to three in three Americans recognize that. But, you know, we, we take what we can get. So um, anyway, that's kind of where that's at. Now, as far as uh, the much bigger question here, though, is L. Ron Hubbard comes back and it's scientifically proven. Okay, that's going to have a fairly drastic effect on organized religion. Now, I think we've seen from COVID and otherwise lately that science is not necessarily taken, um, well, so let's just say some people take it with barrels of salt rather than grains of salt. And so organized religion would not disappear overnight. There would be a whole millions and millions and billions of people who would not believe any of that, no matter how scientifically proven it was proven. So uh, we would have that issue. Um, but over time, I believe, if you could really prove that there was a spiritual side to existence and that reincarnation or resurrection or coming back for another life again was a reality and that L. Ron Hubbard was right about that and that all the people who have ever preached resurrection or, or uh, reincarnation as a dogma were right, that would be a real game changer in a number of ways. Our entire society would eventually change out because if you knew that dying wasn't the end and you could do whatever you wanted and go have another life, I think we would see a, a drastic behavior changes all over the world, both with diet, with sleep, with food, with the way people live their lives, jobs. I mean, everything would change. Um, in ways I couldn't even begin to predict things would change uh, because you would know with utter certainty what I used to believe as a Scientologist, which is that you get to come back. There is no dying. So when you die, you lose your body, you lose your stuff, and you get to come back and do it again. And you're not going to necessarily know the people you were connected with. You know, you're going to forget or whatever. Um, and we're going to have to all overcome that. At which point, does Scientology auditing actually work? I mean, that wasn't in your question, actually. But if it does, and if it were all real and true, boy, would a lot of us have a lot of crow to eat, huh? <laughs> 
But at the same time, L. Ron Hubbard would certainly have some explaining to do because all the things we've said about his life are still true. You know, for example, being married to two women at the same time, a rather egregious offense, I think. Lying about his war wounds, a rather egregious offense, I think. You know, he's got some things to answer for, even if Scientology is true. So, um, so that would be an interesting conversation, to say the least. But um, anyway, I'm only really skimming the surface here. But it would be it would be quite world changing if that were scientifically proven. I'm just you know the point about organized religion is people would not give up their faith just because L. Ron Hubbard came back. Uh, again, emotional needs, right over reality. So there you go, Cindy Robar. I first developed an interest in Scientology about 15 years ago. I had a client at the time, and she was telling me she had started the purification rundown and was going to our local sportsplex to use the sauna. She told me about the time she had to spend in the sauna and the vitamins, which I thought was crazy. She was doing the rundown with another person and explained that while they were doing the rundown, they came out of the sauna and there were strange markings on his back. It was determined that he had taken either antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication, and this is what these markings were. Is this something that happens? Have you ever heard of this happening before? Also, because he was no longer able to continue in Scientology, she also had to stop the rundown until they found another partner for her. Would she have to pay for the course again? All right, Cindy, thank you for these questions. Um, first off, no, the purification rundown is toxic, not detoxifying, and it does not work because it's based on bad, faulty science. L. Ron Hubbard claimed that, um, you know, LSD, alcohol, any drugs you've ever taken, any chemicals you've ever really been involved with have re residue of those materials is lodged in the fatty tissues of your body. Uh, he got this idea from a coroner, I believe, or a mortician out in Portugal years and years ago in the early 70s, and he thought about it and carried that idea forward and decided that he had hit on how to detoxify bodies by getting people to sweat out the toxins, uh, perhaps the most inefficient way that we have of detoxifying a body is sweat. If you talk to anybody in biomedicine or anybody who understands the biochemical nature of a body and how that kind of thing works, then they will tell you in no uncertain terms that L. Ron Hubbard is absolutely full of shit. I mean, 100%, okay? Um, I'm not making this up. This is actually, I've listened to doctors lecture about this, and that is the fact of the matter. Um, yes, some some materials do lodge in the fatty tissues, okay? But LSD isn't one of them. Water-soluble materials like LSD don't lodge in your fatty tissues. That's not why flashbacks happen. That's not why a whole load of things happen with LSD. We don't know why it is that LSD flashbacks happen, but we don't have to make up answers for that by imagining that it's because LSD lodges in the fatty tissues because we know for a fact it doesn't. <sighs> THC does uh, over time, right? And so cannabis, for example, can have that kind of effect. And you could see it coming out when you are getting rid of fatty tissues in your body or through diet or something like that. But generally speaking, if you just stop smoking dope or, or eating edibles, your body flushes it out through a normal course of events through cell rep replacement and that kind of thing, as well as the normal, you know, uh, systems of the body. So the inner workings of the body are what work best to detoxify the body. It's built to do it already. We don't need an external program from L. Ron Hubbard to do that. So I just thought I'd go on a little bit of a roll about the purification program and the ridiculousness of it in order to answer this question, because it is absolutely ridiculous that any antidepressants or uh, anti-anxiety meds came out, much less came out through some strange patterns on the skin. I mean, I, you know, the first thing I thought when I read that was maybe it was the, the creases that make, uh, the, you know, the impressions in your skin from sitting in a, on, a, on a wooden <laughs> bench. <laughs> uh, maybe it was the knots in the wood, you know, because mostly inside saunas, they have wood uh, benches. I mean, that's a, that's a more likely reason for why there were strange markings on his skin than the fact that he was sweating out antidepressants. 
that's just nonsense. And uh, as far as having to pay for the course again, maybe, you know, it depends on how long it took between starting and stopping and who was involved. Uh, it's completely arbitrary. Some organizations and missions would allow the person to continue doing the program with a new twin, a new person. Um, and other people would say, oh, yeah, it's been six months. I think you should pay for it again. And they would have to shell out, you know, two or three or four thousand dollars, however much they're charging for that nonsense now. So there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Oscar Q. Zilch. Suppose Hollywood decided to make a big budget film like The Master. It could be arty drama, a psychological thriller, or a wacky comedy, just as long as the central subject is a lightly fictionalized version of Scientology history. Which time period or incident from the history of Scientology would you choose? Do you have any preferences for directors or actors or the soundtrack? This is a great question, and actually there are two time periods that I would love to see put down in some kind of limited series or, or fictionalized account, and that would be the beginning and uh, growth and evolution of the Sea Organization and or uh, Operation Snow White and the fallout and after effects of it and that whole saga being told. I think, I would think those two things would be the most dramatic times that you would find in Scientology. Um, another one that would also have dramatic uh, appeal would be David Miscavige's rise to Scientology. So uh, the upper level picture of Scientology through the 1980s would also be quite a, an interesting story to tell. And I could see these stories being dramatized seriously or comedically. Um, I think somebody like Adam McKay would have a field day with any one of those plot lines. And I would love, love to see something like that. Jay Andy, let's imagine that you had access to the Hubbard Archive at Gold, but you could make only one request to pull only one file. I would have to be confident that file was there. Which folder would you ask for? Okay, thanks for asking this. And what I would ask for, since it's only one thing, is I would ask for Excalibur, uh, the, the written work that Hubbard did pre-Scientology that explains or codifies his worldview and philosophy, I believe in 1938, I think is when he wrote that. That is what I would like to see more than anything. And also, um, there are people who would pay a good deal of money for that manuscript too. So that would be quite interesting. Uh, I think that would also shed more new light on L. Ron Hubbard's character and ideas than anything else I could pull out of those archives. I think getting um, the, the truth rundown is multiple issues, so I wouldn't, uh, there's no one issue I could pull on that. Uh, I think there's about three or four that I would need to pull. And, um, you know, as far as orders, directives, things like that, I'm not, you know, there's no one single one that I think is uh, particularly more important than any other. But, but Excalibur, oh, that would be gold. Adria Vici Haloub. Will you and Melissa be getting your third COVID-19 shot, booster, when it's available to you and it's the recommended time from your last dose? You're goddamn right I am. <laughs> and so is Melissa. Absolutely. All right. That is our show for this week, folks. I hope that this was an entertaining, enjoyable, and informative for you. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home to ramble on at a mad rate about all this. Um, and I guess we'll just wrap it up here. So I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.